I'll tell you this. Jesus is brilliant. Jesus is brilliant. His interaction with religious leaders in his life on earth is wild. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Uh, there's one in particular in Luke, tw- Luke 10 where a religious leader comes to him and asks him a question, and then Jesus responds. And what does Jesus do? He not only uh, answers, but then he illustrates it with this powerful story that just leaves the man like undone, like, ugh. And so Luke 10, I'm just going to read it for you. I want you to see how brilliant Jesus is. Luke 10, verse 25. This is what happens. I'm going to read this parable. <laughs> For you, Then an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So he's, he's not like seeking, he's not really wanting to uh, have wisdom. He's testing Jesus. He's saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus asked him. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus told him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, this expert in the law, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's like, all right, that's good, but let, you know, let, let's really, because I, I love the, the person right next door to me. If you're going to define any, any, anyone beyond that, I don't know. So who really is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road when he saw him. The priest passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to a hotel, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of the man. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. And Jesus turns to the expert of the law and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he said, the one who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. So love your neighbor and show mercy. Church, in our culture, this, this culture of our family is to be one of love and mercy. That our, our hearts pump with love for God and love for others. And so James, being the half-brother of Jesus, so often appeals to the words of Jesus that, that before we get to James 2.8, I just want you to see what, what does this look like from Jesus' point of view. And it's the, the story of the Good Samaritan. Who's the one you think actually was a neighbor? The one who showed mercy. And this is where James picks up. James 2, verse 8. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. And so, family, we, we want to do well. As a people who've been transformed by God, our hearts want to do well, to be a, to be a family with, with gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Peter Drucker says in, in, in a business book, he says that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And so strategy is good, but what actually will outwin the day is culture. And so for us as a church, what we want our culture to be is to be one of, of, of a people who love others and serve and help and encourage and pour out and show mercy to one another, that we enter into those suffering moments, those intense moments with one another, that we come, a, come alongside one another, that we show affection, and then we, like, not just affection, but in love, sacrificially serve others. Like that, that wouldn't be this one Samaritan to the one guy on the road, but that would be our ethos. That, that would be just be mutually happening throughout our family all the time culture of loving our neighbors. James makes it clear we do well by loving our neighbors. We live wisely by loving our neighbors. We honor King Jesus by loving our neighbors because what? We're obeying his royal law. So this is, again, everyday wisdom from James. It's very practical. Wisdom is the skill of practical living, to live well, to choose the best goals, to choose the best way to get to those goals. Often, we want to know why. We, we ask why a lot. We come to the Bible a lot with why, but so often God is giving us how to live. Because in Jesus, he doesn't always answer all of our questions he doesn't give us all the answers, but he gives us himself. And so we, we, we're not always going to get the wise, but clearly we see from here in James and Proverbs and all of Scripture, he, he gives us, this is how to live. So I might not explain why you're suffering, but, but I'm going to help you how to live in your suffering, how to respond to your suffering. And wisdom is needed in our everyday decisions when we hit those forks in our road. The fork here in this passage is love your neighbor or show favoritism. There may be more options on your table on that Tuesday afternoon, but this just simplifies it, says this is your two options. Love your neighbor or show favoritism. This is what you're going to choose. Now, if I want to Kind of remind you, two weeks ago, we talked about this from chapter uh, 2, 1 through 7 of what favoritism is. And favoritism here is when he says, uh, if you show favoritism, he talked about it previously in the past, last passage, and it literally means to receive a face. So it's to prefer someone based on their look, whether that's their face, their skin's color, their clothes, uh, whatever their outward appearance. Like, I prefer this person based upon what they look like over this person because of what they look like. So he's saying, fork in the road, love others, or favoritism. Now, Philo, the first century Jewish philosopher, 
uh, is, is helpful here because he uh, makes some comments about the royal road in Numbers 2017, and he says it's royal because it not only belongs to God, but it leads to God, and he says that's the same thing as the royal law. It has the same properties. The royal law belongs to God, but it also leads to God. And James says, Christians, walking this road is doing well. Like, this is the path of wisdom. This is the path of wisdom. But you are foolish. You don't love your neighbor when you show favoritism. You break the royal law. Showing favoritism is sin. It's discrimination, prejudice. Discrimination and prejudice are sin. Racism and sin. Preferring, preferring the wealthy over the poor, which was his precise example in the past passage, is sin. Preferring those who, who we can benefit from over, there's, over those who we need to endure and have patient help towards them, that's sin. Preferring the people who look like us over those who don't, sin. Preferring the people who are attractive over those who aren't in our eyes, sin. Meaning high school cafeterias are sin. They're just the whole of it, right? Like all of it, because what it is, it just clicks. Of different people that look similar to one another, we want some sense of belonging, so we gravitate towards those people that look like us, and then we stub our nose at everyone that doesn't look like us. Like, uh, goss. It's 2020. Who's still, it's 2021. Who's still gothing? Who's still? Like, we snub people. Why? Based upon their looks. Now, I, I remember, uh, I, I grew up in Clyde until I was about 11, so it's, it's a couple hours west of here on I-20, small town, moved to San Antonio, and a uh, uh, big culture shift for me. Uh, all my friends went from, like, I don't know, listening to Garth Brooks, and now all my friends are listening to, like, DMX. That's just a little explanation. Uh, but I just remember sitting in the cafeteria, and all my friends were African-American because I played basketball, and we all just played basketball together and hung out. And the first time this really hit me was he, one of my friends, AJ, was leaning back in the cafeteria, or he was sitting at the cafeteria. And he uh, leaned back, and there's a girl who walked past him while he's doing this. And he's just leaning back to, like, he's done eating, he's just kind of relaxing. And he barely bumps her when he leans back while she walks by. And she calls him the N-word. And I was like, what is going on? Like, What is happening? I don't know what to do with this. Uh, other than I was full of rage and said a few things to her. Uh, and it was rough. It was rough. Why? Because favoritism is sin. This preferring people based upon their looks is sin. The Holy Spirit is also brilliant. Look back at verse 1 of this chapter. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, literally, that phrase, because if you're in the ESV or uh, other versions, it's, it's all going to kind of be a little bit different because they wrestle with it, but it literally means this. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. The glory. 
And why I'm telling you the Holy Spirit is brilliant is because in that language itself, the Holy Spirit is getting uh, into our hearts, at our hearts, at the favoritism in our hearts. Because we accommodate the rich and the powerful because we're obsessed with glory. That's what James is getting at. We're, we're hardwired to see and seek glory. We're enamored with radiant brilliance and true greatness and, and uh, uh, just like brilliant, strong power. We're obsessed with it. We're enamored with it. We're hardwired for it. We're created to desire glory, to behold such glory that actually as we behold it, we're transformed as we're beholding this glory. But the problem is we put that glory, we seek that glory in other things or the glory of this world rather than the glory, the glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. And favoritism is rooted in looking to the wrong things for glory. Looking to the rich and the powerful like the people in James for ultimate goodness and greatness. But the good news, the gospel, frees you from pouring out your heart to lesser glories and reveals and gives you the greatest glory, Jesus himself. Are you with me? Because you hardwired for this glory. But the question is, where are you seeking that from? Where are you putting that at? Where are you going after? I just make this case simply from, biblically, but I'll just make it anecdotally or from the culture. Uh, we're hardwired for glory is a reason why there is now a job called social media influencer. If we weren't hardwired for glory, that wouldn't be a job. It wouldn't be a job. These people now set forth, are set forth as the glory in this world. The things to see, the things to behold, the things to uh, 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 try to get to, to emulate, right? Do you, do you think looking at influencers on Instagram every day isn't going to influence how you view other people? Their whole game is trying to look the best, right? They take 73 photos to post one. Why? It's got to be the best. Why? Because that's what they're trying to portray. They're trying to portray glory, and you're obsessed with it because you want glory. You want to behold such glory. So don't you think that's going to affect how we view people, people that don't look like them or don't look like us? We're going to prefer people who look like the image that we're beholding over the, the images, the people that don't bear that same image. In this way, social media is shaping us, is a liturgy of spiritual discipline that is forming us more and more into the image of favoritism. But... There is freedom and renewal. There is. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, will shape you in love. If, you, if you've been going down the path where social media, whatever, is shaping you in favoritism, the gospel frees us and shapes us in love, not prejudice, in love, not discrimination, in love, not racism, in love. 
when Jesus is the glory for you, you are freed not to put that burden on other people where they have to bear the weight of your expectation of glory. Where you put them on a pedestal. Or you seek people who are above your current social standing, right? Because you can benefit from them. Because if you can get in with them, then maybe that will rise your standing in your, your social sphere. You know, the, the gospel of Jesus is the glory to you. It frees you from having to climb that ladder. You're actually freed to love. And so what I'm getting at, what James is getting at, is that the gospel renews us inward, but it also propels us outward. So to stop at the beginning, that first phrase, is to make this only private and about you, almost to the point where it becomes subjective and relative. Like this is just my personal experience. Yes, the gospel renews us, transforms us, but it also propels us outward. That's why James is about to get controversial next week and say, faith without works is dead. If you, have, if you say you have faith, but it actually doesn't propel you to love others, to show mercy, if you're the priest on the road and you walk by and you see the guy beaten and you're like, oh no, I gotta get to mass, forget this. Something's wrong. Something's off. I know the priest in Luke 10 is not Catholic. I'm sorry. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> it's okay if you are a priest. Okay. But if you see someone beaten up, half dead, and you walk past them, that's not okay. That's what I'm trying to say. All right. All right. So the gospel renews us inward and propels us outward. We're a people with gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Where we hold fast to the love of God for us in Christ. And that he elected us, he saved us, he justified us, he united us with Christ. And we also breathe out that love to one another. This is countercultural. This is just different than most of the other spheres that you operate in. This pushes back against the bitter criticism and harsh judgment and demonizing every other person that has a different opinion than you. It's a culture not shaped by the world, but shaped by the cross. And that's a counterculture. And isn't isn't that our expectation of church? Like we, we want, a pl- I think we want a place where we, we are shaped by love. Where, where we can actually be honest and open about our struggles, our needs, our brokenness. Because we know that the culture is not harsh judgment, bitter criticism, or demeaning you when you uh, are vulnerable and open up your sin. But it actually comes alongside you and helps you and cares for you. And wants you to know, let's go this way, let's grow, let's seek Jesus. Where we're all needy and confess that we're needy. And we're all humbled by the glory of Jesus. We're all trying to surrender to him and give our lives to him and not go back. Where we're all experiencing the love of God for us in Christ. And we're all 
wanting to roll that love out to one another. This is countercultural because what binds us is not what we look like, but by our Savior, Jesus. That's what binds us. The glory is what binds us, Jesus. D.A. Carson puts it this way. Brilliant. The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says. And he commands them, he commands us to love one another. In this light, we, let's make this personal, are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. In any other arena, we may never be friends. We may never have been around one another, want to prefer one another, want to hang out together, but because of Jesus, we are family. A family who loves one another for his sake. So, so one way for us to grow in this uh, as a family is not to become homogenous and only cater to a niche demographic and put out people who look different than us. That's actually completely caving into favoritism. No, one way to grow in this as a family is not to put out people, but to put out the favoritism in our hearts. That's what needs to go. I told you a story last week of uh, the church in Philadelphia, I think in the 17 or it's got to be 1800s, that, that over time pushed all the African-American people to the balcony. And what did they do? They left. But what needs a change is not a certain demographic or people that look a different way need to be pushed out. What needs to be pushed out in all of us is the favoritism in our hearts. That needs to go. That needs to be kicked out. That needs to be gone. There's no space. There's a, there's a lot of space in here for your sin and suffering, your brokenness and your need for Jesus. But, but James is saying, you've got you've to have a sense of urgency to kick this out. This is something to flirt with, to play around with, to minimize. We confess it. We don't hide it. We confess it. Because the gospel frees us to fully admit our sins and face ugly things about ourselves. Right now, one of the like, worst things you can be called is a racist, and so what do people say? They never confess that they have any racism in their hearts? Mm, that really works out for us, doesn't it? Like, it's the worst thing you could be called, so let's not ever admit anything. That's not good. That, that pushes people to hide in shame. Now, the gospel actually frees us to be very honest about what's happening inside of us, what's going on in us, what's the sin in our hearts, to confess it to tell the truth about what's lurking in our hearts, even when it's unpleasant. Like, that's when we find hope. How do you expect things to change in your heart and your life if you don't take it to Jesus, the one that can transform you? So that's what James is doing here. In the big picture of James, <laughs> it seems like the church he's writing to were ignoring or minimizing the sin of favoritism. 
because he, he, he brings it up, number one. That's a big deal. Number two, he presses into it and says, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted as lawbreakers. So he's saying is, favoritism isn't a minor thing. It's breaking the royal law. So, so a nugget of precious wisdom for us from James is you don't deal with your sin by minimizing it. That's not how you deal with it. That's not actually how you address it, is by minimizing it, make, trying to make it small, trying to view it as, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Another way you don't deal with your sin is to say, I'm killing it in this area. Boom. Hey, you murdered someone, but I've been faithful to my wife for 10 years. Like, what? No, you can't do this. And that, that's what's crazy about James's uh, illustration. That's what he says. You can't do this. You can't say, I hate my parents, but I kept the Sabbath. Yeah, I'm doing great. No problem with that. I don't need to grow over here. I need to repent of that over here because I'm doing well over here. I don't look down on people that look different than me. Or I do, but I don't tithe, but I tithe consistently. Good. I give to the church, so this doesn't matter. Favoritism doesn't need to be changed. No, you own your sin for what it is before God and repent of it. You turn from it and turn towards loving others by hearing again the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I mean, think if you're hearing uh, uh, or watching courtroom TV and there's a guy on, on, uh, in the, in the court accused of a murdering, like let's say he has murdered someone and his defense on the witness stand is, I've been faithful with my wife. We'd be like, oh, well, bro, you, you're still going to jail. Like, I don't know why you told us that. But th- th- that's James's logic. He's saying that's what we do. It's insane, but that's how insane sin is, and we justify it. We'll highlight how well I'm doing in this part so I don't have to repent of this part. I don't have to deal with this. There's this little phrase in here that I think is quite powerful. When he says, verse 11, for he who said. It's hard to minimize or ignore your sin or to fight the law when what you realize is the law of God is God speaking to you. It's not this distant, aloof, arbitrary law that some governing board made that's out of touch and doesn't really know what's happening. It's God speaking it. What God has said clearly is love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the beginning of wisdom in our lives is to submit to the infinite wisdom of God. Submitting to he knows the best way to live. And so whatever he says, whatever he speaks, is the best way to live. What he wants for us is to experience this vibrant and flourishing community. And favoritism is not that path. Favoritism splinters genuine Christian community. So the best way to live as the people of God, the family of God, as a local body, is to love others as yourself. Not minimize your sin, own it, turn from it, and grow in it as a people. And he doesn't stop. He says, all right, you know, you can't minimize this favoritism. 
because he, he pushes forward and says, one sin equals lawbreaker. But the, all the law hangs together, and so to break one part is to break the whole thing. So rather than trying to justify your failures and disobedience, own and repent of your sin. See your sin before the face of God. Because minimizing your sin at the end of the day isn't actually dealing with your sin, and you're actually cheapening Christ's death on the cross. Why does the Son of God have to die for your sin, pay for the penalty of your sin if it's not that big of a deal? So if you're saying, no, no, I don't need to really address favoritism, I'll ignore it, I'll minimize it, what you're saying is really, no, 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 I don't need the death of Christ applied to me. My sin isn't that big of a deal. My sin really isn't heinous treason against God. That's what we're saying. And so James' wisdom is saying, don't fall in line with that thinking. Confess your your evil thinking. Confess your evil desires. Confess your sinful actions and turn from them. And that's where the gospel renews us inward. But it doesn't stop there. It propels us outward. So you need forgiveness for that sin in your heart. You need to be transformed. The gospel does that, but then also pushes us outward to love others. That's verses 12 and 13. He says, as a command, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I've got a lot here. Man, I built on this last time. No, we're going to get into it. You need it. I need it. Let's hear it. Let's first address this little phrase, the law of of freedom. Why? Because he spoke of it in chapter 125. I didn't have time to address it. I almost just built on it again, but let's talk about it. Because for us to hear it is to hear really a contradiction. We're like, this is an oxymoron. I'll just skip past it and not put too much thought into it. How can a law be a law of freedom? That goes against the grain in our minds. We're like, ooh, don't like it. Not a fan. It sounds impossible, illogical. That's because how we think and talk about freedom. We so often define freedom as the absence of restriction. That's when someone is doing someone uh, something dumb in a public place, and their response is, it's a free country. And you're like, what? What does that have to do with anything? Like, there's no restrictions on me. It's a free country. But also, do you always notice that no one says that when they're doing something kind and helpful? It's like, if I hold the door for you afterwards, and you're like, thank you. I'm like, it's a free country. You're like, okay. It's only when we do something dumb, right? Because we say, there's no restrictions on me. There's no constraints on me. I can do this. I can yell at you. I can throw this burger back in your face at Burger King. It's a free country. Like, what? This is bizarre. But that just, that's like an outlandish uh, a world star uh, example, but that's, that's what we do. <laughs> that's what we do. That's how we think about freedom. It's that if we remove all constraints, we end up with freedom. So rules and laws restrict my freedom, so the law of freedom doesn't make sense. Now, Sam Albury writes this, 
It's succinct, so it's helpful. In the Bible, real freedom is not the absence of any and every constraint, but rather the presence of the right kind of restraint. So, so my son caught three fish yesterday, my, my youngest son. The other two, nothing, sad for them. But the other, my youngest caught three. And, and what if we, like, just pulled them off the hook, I put them on the dock and said, fish, you're free, you're welcome, we got you out of that water. You see what I'm saying? We can tell him he's free. We can say we removed him from the constraint of water. But no, he's actually less free, not more free. Why? Because he's designed to be in the constraints, the restraints of water. That's where he flourishes. So to take him out is actually to do a disservice to him. And that's us too. We're designed to live by God's wisdom. So to be pulled out of that or to buck all of God's wisdom or to throw off the law is not to be more free but less free. Less free. Albury continues, our own true freedom is only found when we are in the environment which we were designed to flourish in, and that is obedience to God's word. As we live by God's word, we experience true life. Only then can we be said to properly free. So we're, that's the environment that we're created for. So to pull us out of the water, so to speak, is to make us less free. So that's why he's saying it's the law of freedom. Now one more angle at this is just to acknowledge the, the massive shift that has happened in Western society in the past 200 years. And the shift is that we move towards, by and large, the, the main goal being human flourishing. And then over probably the past 50 years, the main goal for people, as we communicate and talk about it as a, as a whole, as the world, as a culture, we talk about the main goal not being all of human flourishing, but really my personal flourishing. And the Bible states, is neither of those are the main goal. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And human flourishing comes out of that, flows out of that. It's really a byproduct of that. Like if your main goal is to glorify God, then you will flourish. If your main goal is your personal human flourishing, you will fail. You're not going to get it. Because you're going to be looking in the wrong parts for the glory. This all takes us back to the royal road, the royal law. It's the path that belongs to God and leads to God. So how can I say it's a law of freedom? Because living God's ways glorifies him and will always be the best for us. Now, since some people pit James and Paul against one another, we'll see what Paul says. Galatians 5.13, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. And we're like, yeah, July 4th, America, slow your roll, okay? Calm down. No restraints. That's how we read it, right? Like, you probably have that on a coffee mug in your house, and you use that. You, like, it's a free country. You use it. You're like, Jesus made me free. Do whatever I want. I don't know why you talk like that. You should also stop that. <laughs> Let it keep going. For you are called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, 
But what? Freedom to serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, let's add another example. If you show favoritism, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. And so the gospel frees us to love others. The, the gospel renews our selfish hearts and then the gospel propels us outward. Back to verse 12. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. Do you remember what James said in, in chapter 1? He said, don't be hearers and doers of, uh, uh, don't be hearers only of the word, but be doers of the word. And so just to make this connection crystal clear, to, to hear and do the word is to speak and act in love. Favoritism speaks and acts in self-interest and discrimination, but mercy speaks and acts in love. Jesus speaks and acts in love. Jesus' people speak and act in love. Even our rebuke towards one another is to be gentle and in love. Not to, not to demean the person, but to serve them, to turn back and come to the royal road, the wise path of delighting in Jesus and following Jesus. So we show mercy to one another, speaking and acting in love. Mercy at its core, at its essence, is giving, not giving people what they deserve. It's compassion that moves towards others. A merciful family that has compassion and comes alongside and, 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 and sees the need and helps one another in that need. But again, I think the question is, how can we grow in this? How can we grow in this? The answer is the gospel, again. The, the Bible is honestly raw about our state. And says, you deserve judgment from God. Not because how you look, but because of your heart. Because the sin there. So you deserve to be judged, to be punished, but Christ's mercy means you weren't given what you deserve, but rather given grace and love. That's the good news of Jesus. So that, that's how we grow in this, to experience Jesus' radical love for us, because his love for us is more radical than we believe. And his call to love others is more radical than we act. But, but the good news is how we grow in extending mercy is going back again to the truth of the gospel that we've received mercy. We receive mercy. We continue to receive mercy. To, to put this in us, I mean, if you're a dad, have you ever said something you're like, oh my goodness, I sound like my dad. Why did I say that? You're like, oof. I did not plan on saying that. I did say it. It was like instinctively just came out in that moment. I don't want to do that again. Well, but that's because how you interact with your dad, because you're around your dad. That's how he, he related to you. And so then you turn around and you relate that to your parents. And what I'm saying is, if you want us 
I want us to be a family who grows in mercy, we need to uh, uh, repeatedly experience the mercy of our Father. And so instinctively what we do is react with mercy, not harsh judgment. Because mercy, and we should read it this way, triumphs over judgment. This is what we need. Not the biting and devouring one another and the gossip and the slander and the harsh criticism and the bitterness, but mercy towards one another. We become like our God as we consistently receive his mercy. Because that's how he relates to us. So The gospel renews us inward and propels us outward. I want you to see this image from the gospel center life to, to, to help to just think about it or to see it. But internally, the grace of God moves me to see my sin, to respond in repentance and faith, and to experience joy. And by God's grace, we see opportunity to love and minister other people. And then we die to ourselves, step out in faith, and rejoice. And so it's just an infinite loop of being transformed by God's grace and then uh, the gospel propelling us outward to love and serve those uh, around us. Because neighbor is not defined uh, by the neighbor app. It's defined by those people that you come into contact in your life. So the gospel propels us to serve, to love, to see those opportunities, which means the gospel is not only the answer to our internal sins and struggles and heart idols, it's also the answer for our lack of love for one another. For our lack of living on mission. It renews us, changes us, makes us more like Jesus, and also propels us to love because that's what we've been given. Let's pray. Father, I pray for this. I pray that the, the graph, the chart will actually happen. That, that your gospel, your good news of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus would renew us this morning, transform our hearts, address the sin in our lives, and also propel us outwards to show mercy and to speak and act in love. Please, Lord, pray that, that we would be a people of solid gospel doctrine, but also a people with this gospel culture. In Christ's name, I pray.